Good afternoon and welcome to Analyzing IT's Opportunities to Reduce Clinician Burnout, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Halo Health. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health Systems CIO, and I will be your moderator today. Uh, we're looking forward to your participation. You send it, can send in your questions or comments as they occur to you in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. And if we have time, we'll get to our uh, audience poll and get you involved. A nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. You can adjust the divider then to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. David Allard, CMIO at Henry Ford Hospital and Health Network, Dr. Bill Maynard, VP and CMIO with SCL Health, and Dr. Jose Barreau, co-founder and CEO with Halo Health. So let's jump right in, make good use of our time today. Um, David, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure, uh, I'm at Henry Ford Health System, which is in Detroit, Michigan. We're a uh, mid to large sized integrated health system, which includes a fully owned health plan, as well as six hospitals, a something like 1700 member employed medical group, which is the we have a closed model at our flagship hospital, but then they also staff a lot of our community hospitals. And then another three or 4,000 providers who are affiliated in one way or other as affiliated practices who also use some of our IT tools in their own practices, uh, even though those are private, as well as affiliated in terms of providers who are staffed at our hospitals. Um, so that's, that's the group, it's a fairly uh, diverse. Uh, my role as a chief medical information officer is really is an ombudsman between IT and, and clinical users, both doctors and nurses with my kind of co-partner, our, our chief nursing informatics officer. You know, so in a sense, I keep thinking when I'm, in a, when I'm in a meeting with doctors, my job is to be an IT person. When I'm in a meeting with IT people, my job is to, to be a doctor and, and, and try and communicate the art of the possible in between those groups uh, to try and mesh. How do we use a set of tools well on the doctor side and how do we create a tool belt that's highly usable on the IT side. Mm -hmm. And that's a very uh, good description of the job. I like that. Uh, Bill? Sure. My name is Bill Maynard. I am the Chief Medical Informatics Officer at SCL Health. SCL Health is um, an integrated operating system with um, eight care sites across Colorado and Montana. We also have a wholly owned medical group um, that operates in each of our markets, representing um, around 400 physicians and um, advanced practice providers overall. Um, Additionally, at each of our um, eight hospitals, we have um, affiliated medical staff, which actually provide about 80% of the services. Um, I don't think I could do a much better description than David did in terms of what I do as a CMIO in that I, I operate on that line between IT and our um, clinical colleagues, along with my partner um, in our chief nursing informatics officer. Um, we really act as the translators between those two groups so that we can translate the language of the technical into the operational and vice versa. Um, and it, it's a very necessary and rewarding role because oftentimes if we get the people in the room together, they talk past one another and we can ensure that they're actually talking to one another. Excellent, very good. Jose? 
Hi, um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Halo Health and uh, in our products are clinical collaboration platforms. So, you know, really what I, what I try to do, I'm a physician, I'm kind of jumped onto the other side is just try to improve communication and collaboration for physicians and nurses across health systems and um, really try to be on the right side of alert fatigue and burnout if possible you know, which is a tricky thing. Um, and so just, you know, trying to put the clinical voice in our company along with the other doctors and nurses in our company. So we, you know, provide technology that helps physicians and nurses try to do, you know, a better job and, and make their lives easier. So that's what we try to focus on. Very good. All right, uh, Bill, we're going to start with you. How do you identify the IT related issues causing clinician burnout at your organization? And then the secondary question is, do you think of nurse burnout differently from physician burnout? Sure. So um, we have a number of tools that we use actually to help identify this. Um, I think one of the most useful ones to me is actually getting out and talking to our clinicians to identify those issues that are the pain points for them on a day-to-day -day basis and trying to determine are there systems-based solutions for that, technical solutions for that, workflow solutions for that. Um, we also leverage some of the internal um, EHR data that we have. We're an Epic shop so that we have um, the opportunity to use some of the data that Epic collects as well as using data that Epic has collected from other health systems to help us determine interventions that we can make. Um, further, we are um, getting ready to leverage data from um, the Class Research Arch Collaborative to help us with um, addressing some of the issues that are specific to burnout amongst our clinicians. Um, do I think of nurse burnout differently than physician burnout? I think that they're part of the same animal overall. Um, nurses tend to um, have a lot more association with um, tasks, tasks rather occurring within the EHR than our providers do. So making changes in the EHR probably has a greater impact on burnout for them than it does for our providers, where um, impact on workflow and um, systems integration probably has a, a better um, impact for our provider colleagues. Mm -hmm. Very good, David. I'm very similar to Bill in that uh, we try to do a fair amount of rounding. We have embedded embedded troops, so to speak, with uh, clinical liaisons and trainers that do a certain amount of rounding, as well as we have nursing and provider advisory groups that meet with our uh, EMR uh, builders and analysts in the system to try and make sure that we're listening to concerns as well as getting a good conduit of what's coming down the pike in terms of the changes we might make in the system. We also, uh, we've done the ARCH Collaborative uh, survey a couple of times, uh, both with nurses and with doctors and trying to, get, to, trying to get a little bit of a sort of quantitative data out of that, as well as we do uh, yearly employee engagement surveys of, of, of all roles, nursing and providers. Uh, from, a, from a nurse provider standpoint, I also think uh, uh, Bill and I are very much in the same camp. I don't think they're really different, maybe slightly different aspects in that, um, I think nurses have a little bit more of an issue with things like alert burnout and alert fatigue. We find that of the alerts that we give in our EMR system, probably two thirds of them go to nursing and one third of them go to providers. Whereas I think on the provider side, we have a little bit more of a kind of cognitive load of data assimilation and, and the burnout is often around, do we do a good job of 
data presentation to make it really much more informational rather than here's a slew of numbers that someone needs to digest. And, and I think that's a significant aspect of burnout for us more than the task piece, which as Bill mentioned, uh, particularly hit the nurses. Very good, Jose, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with David and Bill. I'm, I'm a physician like they are kind of on the other side of this and kind of creating the technology in a way. And one thing we think about is, you know, categorize how difficult it is to do the physical work that doctors and nurses do, things like documentation and those types of things, and how difficult it is to do real-time communication, you know, information exchange of information that matters. So we look at it as the, what are the steps you have to take, you know, how many steps you have to take to, to do the physical work and how intuitive are those steps, right? The less steps you have to take and the more intuitive they are. Um, you know, the easier it is to do your job. And, and as far as doctors and nurses, the first thing I noticed as being a doctor and jumping on the technology side is how much more nurses tolerate um, interruptions and alert fatigue than doctors. If, if doctors got interrupted as much as nurses, I'll tell you what, there'd be, I think there'd be a lot of jumping up and down. Um, and they're in front of, we're all in front of patients, doctors and nurses, you know, most of the time, and every time you get interrupted with something, an alert or something, it's an interruption from patient care that causes, you know, break in concentration and quality thing and patient dissatisfaction because you're not the most important thing in the world now, you know, so there's a lot of issues there that we, we try to think about, you know, in terms of when you're interrupting someone, make it count, you know, make it real time, mm. it matters. So um, we think of that as nurses as, as a big problem you know, uh, as much as physicians. Jose, um, you have examples that come to mind of unnecessary interruptions that are very common that, that may be related to IT? Yeah, it, we have we have a lot. I mean, being a, a real-time kind of communication platform that goes across the system, we're trying to understand how many times people get interrupted per shift and from where. Uh, are they coming from individual people, from roles in the hospital, from machines? And when you put that all together, there's a lot of alerts and there's a lot of real-time communication that doesn't have to happen. It can wait, you know, or it's going to the wrong person or, it, it, or it's a false alert, right? Or it's something that, you know, people normally ignore or it shouldn't be on that setting that's interrupting someone. So there, there are lots of examples of, you know, people getting interrupted and physicians getting interrupted by something that certainly could have waited and been somewhere in the EHR where they could have, when they could have gotten to it when they had time, but somehow they were interrupted. Somebody thought it was important. So you can't solve all problems with technology. A lot of it is some of it's education, right. And, and, you know, best practices around these things uh, and some of it's technology, but there's, we're constantly looking at this and, and we're trying to figure out ways to, to prevent interruptions of care which are, are an important part of, of alert fatigue and, and contribute to burnout. Bill, uh, I'm thinking that based on what Jose said, that we have to get to the point and we have to get to the point where every interruption that he described is completely intolerable because cumulatively, you know, there's a major effect. So is that where you come at it from? Are you at, to that point that, We've got to get rid of every single one of these that we can that is not providing value or is happening at the wrong time. I don't know how you figure that out, but go ahead. Right. And and I think it's you know important that we're evaluating all of these alerts using the five rights framework as well, that you know, we are providing the right right information, the right tool at the right point in the workflow to the right person. 
Um, and you know, many alerts, as Jose mentioned, don't meet those rules currently. And we're actually undertaking a complete review of all of our alerts that appear within our system currently. You know, we have alerts that appear to our nurses that that say essentially, um, you know, this is missing on the patient. Go figure out how to do it without providing a workflow of how to take care of of that action, or um, an alert that says that's interruptive that says. Um, I'm automatically adding this to the patient's chart. Just thought you should know, essentially. And you know, those are un completely unnecessary interruptions that you know interrupt our our nurses' train of thought. It increases the cognitive burden. It decreases the attention to the patient. And and you're right. It is simply intolerable that we allow these interruptions to um, not allow our clinicians to provide the excellent care of which they're capable. Hey, David, what I'm, I'm just I'm thinking about that mindset of, of having no like a zero tolerance for anything that can be removed or that can be put at it. Is that the proper way to go about this to to look at that sort of with a zero tolerance approach? I, I think it's the right philosophy. I, I'm not going to set it as a goal on my annual performance review. So, uh, for example, <laughs> you know, I would. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to never have to stop at a stop sign in the middle of the night on a deserted road. But at the same time, I don't think we should have stop signs built with sensors that fall down whenever there's nobody else around because it just becomes a, a, a I think perfect will become the enemy of the good very, very quickly. So like Bill does, we do periodic reviews of our all of our alerts. We have dashboards to say which ones fire the most often, which ones are ignored the most often, when do they fire, to whom do they fire trying to determine what's our false positive rate and all those kinds of things. And, and I think that work will never, ever end. But as we get into a world where we would like to do more alerts that are of a predictive analytic basis, right? So if I want to start saying, hey, this guy may be developing sepsis. Hey, this woman may be at a high risk of readmission for their CHF and, and some of those kinds of things. There's, there's a certain level of of sloppiness that I think is part of the game, right? So, so I think it's uh, the other part we look at is in terms of that intolerability. Yes, I'm. I'd already. I'd written, I was writing down five rights, right? When when Dr. Menard said it, and I was like, oh yeah. So here, but uh, I think the other part is how do we eliminate some of those bad alerts by making them not alerts in the first place? So, so we kind of start thinking about clinical decision support. Often gets spoken of in terms of alerts. We're trying to spend some time on. How do we turn those alerts instead into better data presentations? How do we turn those into more useful order sets that they would have been used in the first place rather than trying to whack people with a stick when something's going sideways? So is it the right way to look at it? Yes, uh, but at the same time, I, I think you've got to allow that there's always gonna be some of that and how do we just make sure that it's as, uh, as good as it can be? Jose, where does yeah. uh, personal preference come into this because um, I know you need sort of a build at, for the enterprise, for the organization, and you, I would imagine you get that through governance um, in terms of deciding what alerts are going to happen when, what's appropriate, and we'll hear from everyone else on this in terms of what governance comes in to make those decisions. What is the standard flow, the standard build in terms of, but some, one physician or, and then, but then you've got different disciplines, you've got different yeah. types of doctors that could be totally different, right? So do you have a standard build for the entity? Do you have a standard build for the discipline? And then is there room at the individual level for someone to say, you know, I don't wanna see that at this point. I wanna see it over here. That's how mm -hmm. I like to work. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts there? 
Well, that's a complicated topic, but let me just say, I, I agree with David and Bill, you can't have a zero tolerance policy because um, you know, you're going to miss some important things and there can't, you know, if, if patients are going to be harmed, you have to err on the side of the patients. You have to tolerate a little bit, you know, of alert fatigue and a little bit of these types of things for the benefit of the patient because it's just not perfect yet. But I think, you know, to our point, when you build an enterprise platform across the system, you know, you have to, you have to make it configurable and you really can't make it truly customizable, you make it configurable so people can put their own kind of preferences in, right? Their auto-forwarding, their do not disturbs, their, their, their preferences on roles and those types of things. Um, but to our, you know, to, to, you, know you don't want to, we call it interruptions. You don't want to limit communication and collaboration. You want that information to flow because it's good for patient care, but you want it to be the right information at the right time to the right person. So the more things you can do to put that in place, right, the right roles, the right people in the right seat, so you know who's on call when and who's on shift when and who's taking care of what patient at what time, so you make sure that that goes to the right person at the right time, you're making some headway into that world. Um, And, you know, it's uh, education on users. A lot of it is interruptions by people. And, you know, as soon as they get a piece of information, they want to and they want to translate it to someone, you know, and it's not necessarily appropriate to send right now or ever, or it could just be sent through the EHR and they can look at it when the patient comes to them. Um, So we see a lot of interruptions that why, you know, this could be seen next week, right? Why, why is somebody sending this information? So it's a complicated topic. And I know I said a lot, but, but the point is that it's user, it's education of the health system on what's high priority, urgent and emergent, right? In real time and what is not. And very small amount of that information that comes from a patient is actually falls in those categories. David, your thoughts? I I think uh, I think our approach to this all, well, I'm going to go a little bit with what uh, Jose was saying. Our approach is always going to be about where do we allow physicians to customize things. And that's true. It, it, it does make a significant difference. We, we've been specifically talking about alerts though. And alerts are the things that people don't necessarily anticipate. We do try to do certain alerts, certain um, customization on where people receive them or how they receive them. But the alerts, we're really trying to do a little bit more of a system level. So if, if my alerts are mostly around clinical decision support, that I don't think I want to customize a whole lot. Either it's important enough or it's not. Uh, but in terms of customization around the presentation of the of the electronic medical record and its data, that I'm, I'm really, really high on. And I think that's that's a big part of it in terms of reducing that cognitive burden. So we got out of the topic of alert fatigue, which I think is good because that's not the only problem of, of uh, physician burnout. But uh, I would probably take my customizations around interface, data presentation, uh, transactions a little bit less around alerts themselves. Alerts are guardrails. They're meant to be there at the right time, but I don't think you get to decide I don't need them. Bill? Yeah, and I just think about, you know, this more broadly, you know, alerts are a piece of decision support, but, you know, we're, we're talking about our decision support tools overall as well. And that data presentation is a huge part of, of decision support. You know, we're, we're currently, you know, undertaking 
some work within our organization right now to shift from a purely user customizable mentality to more of a system mentality with user settings that we allow customization in for that. Rather than saying, we have 300 reports that could potentially display the information that you need, you can dig through them to find the one that does the best for you. Instead, we say, we have these top five reports that present the information that's going to be important to you as a clinician in different visual ways. You can choose which one appears to you at the top of your stack when you first open a patient's chart. That way we do provide some control to the clinician while still ensuring that the appropriate data is received to provide the best care for patients. Yeah, Bill, that's very interesting because it's true. Uh, you can have the same information presented just different visually and mm -hmm. it works for someone and the other one doesn't. I know I'm that way based on how you set up a spreadsheet or, or something uh, where you put the colors and the rows and everything. So you finally get it to, okay, this works for what I like to see when I, you know, in a quick, I get it, but the other way, I don't like that. So I think that's interesting that you're giving them a top five choice of here are different ways to look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it speaks to your point of, you know, the user who comes in and says, well, I actually like this information displayed over here on the right side of the screen rather than the right. left side of the screen, because that's the way my brain works. Um, we, we can provide some user customization in certain areas for that while still ensuring that they have all of the data that's necessary to care for their patients. Yeah, can we, David, can we quickly just talk about governance? Um, any, any thoughts about how you do it, advice uh, for making the decisions of what's going to go forward? Uh, what's the process over there? We've, uh, like many organizations, we have a clinical decision support uh, committee, which essentially evaluates on an ongoing basis the requests for alerts that we get, which are legion, as well as the review of the ones that we already have and, and, and look at those. And we, the goal is to try and make a reasonably quantitative assessment of any alert for how often would it fire, what's the benefit of it firing, what's the damage if it gets ignored or, or, or missed, and, and what's our opportunity. Um, we actually tried at one point to make for not just alerts, but for all IT changes, a, a sort of failure mode effects analysis scoring system, very similar to what gets used in manufacturing. Um, we didn't use that very much just because it was difficult for the requester often to fill it out and the, the time involved in using it was hard. But in terms of just looking at what's opportunity and, uh, and, and trying to make a determination of how is that gonna fit into the overall workflow and particularly where do things fit in, into that scalable workflow that we're shooting for. Uh, there's always going to be a couple of items that just suddenly get thrown in without a formal governance process. You get a regulatory requirement that says suddenly you better ne have a never fail on a certain thing. We're going to throw in an alert and, and set up a guardrail for it. But yes, we have a committee that continually looks at these and we try and channel all the result, all the requests in through that process. Jose, any thoughts on governance? Well, from, from the vendor side, we work with um, committees like David's committee. Um, and they kind of drive, you know, we, we are a, a cloud platform that goes across the system and we integrate with different things like the EHR, the nurse call systems and those types of things, depending on the organization. But we like the less we integrate with the better. We like it. You know, we, we want to make sure those integrations are real time and they're sending information to the platform and it's a protected platform. So we like to, you know, meet with the governance committees, and executive committees and tell them what we like of best practices but every health system's a little bit different and, you know, and every um, governance committee 
is looking for something a little bit different, all with the same intent of providing great high quality care and reducing the noise and the interruptions. Um, but I think, you know, what, what David's committees and bill committees do is, is, you know, we follow their lead. We have best practice, but we follow their lead in, in, in what they want us to do in integration wise. You know, Bill, that's interesting what Jose is talking about. Um, you know, vendor, you bring a vendor in and you're bringing them in for their expertise, right? You're bringing them in uh, because they're going to help you. And theoretically, they know how they want to do things. But then sometimes you want to do things a little differently than they want to do things. Um, and depending on the vendor and their uh, position in the market, sometimes they have more or less willingness to engage in your modifications. And we we know this. We know some vendors that are quite intolerant of changes with good reason, proven track record. Um, how do you approach it with a vendor that comes in and when they may say, nope, this is how we do it. And you say, well, this is how I really want to do it. I mean, how does that go? Well, you know, we're actually, you know, as an organization fairly early on in our, you know, formal governance process. And, you know, we have historically allowed a lot of changes to go through without formal review. So when we engage with a vendor in this space right now, we really look to their expertise, as you were saying, to, to say, this is how leading organizations are doing it. Help us understand why our organization should do it differently. So kind of flipping that question on its head uh, um, when we present that to our operational stakeholders of, you know, 16 other organizations with which this vendor has worked previously have successfully implemented the practice that they're describing. We have this completely diametrically opposed practice right now um, that we believe works for us. Why is that process working for us and it hasn't worked for the other organizations? Yeah, Jose, so when you come in um, and you, you say, this is how our product works, this is how we do it, we've found success. Mm -hmm. If have you been asked or pushed to do things in a way that you did not feel would be in the best interest of the customer, and what do you do? It's funny. This is a great topic, and if people from our company are on this on this video, you know they're going to be laughing at me right now because I really came on very strong initially, you know, um, and came in. This is you know it's our way. We got to do it this way. You know, this is the best practices, and this is how you got to do it. Um, because we felt very strongly that you can go into a health system and just get thrown around and thrashed around. Uh, and mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you implement the, the way the health system wants, you, not good adoption and not good experience, and it's your fault as a vendor, yep. right? I mean, you can't blame anyone else, right? So we went in very strong after initially having some negative experiences by getting thrown around. And then we backed off a little bit and found a happy medium. Right. Um, saying, hey, look at these best practices we have. This is look at go visit this place or this place that we've implemented. Check it out and let us know why you want to do something different. And if it, it, it if, you know, if the, the head CMIOs and everything feel very strong, they want to do that, then we'll comply. Right. Absolutely. Right. But we'll we'll put up a we'll put up a reason to have a discussion about it. And we'll talk about because sometimes things don't make sense. And and people like David and Bill are very smart, but they're doing a, a lot of things and they may have not thought about this specific thing. And we'll say, but you want this really? Let's let's pull out a few layers why we really don't want to do this. We did this before and it doesn't doesn't right. work real well. So so it's a happy medium. We pushed strong at first, backed off a little bit. Now I think we're in a good place. Um, but at the end of the day, David and Bill are, are, you know, the customers and 
you know, healthcare is local a lot of times, and there's some specific problems, specific places that need to be solved. Uh, it's a really, really interesting uh, discussion. Um, and I would, I would even just add on to what you're saying that um, you may push and then give, but there may be certain things that you don't give on, right? Mm -hmm. So you say, yes. we, we allow flexibility in this request. Yeah, this one, but this one, no. Does we know? I'll give you a perfect example. Like initially, yeah. we you know people say, "I just want physicians to have this collaboration platform." Well, you say, you know, physicians speak to nurses more than they speak to other physicians. You know, They're, that you know that, that it's not going to be a great experience, and adoption is going to be poor, and you know you're not going to have a great. And you know, the nurses are going to be, "Why can't I have it?" And that's exactly what happens, right? And then it's just you know a drawn out problem. Uh, so you know. Doctors and nurses work together. They should be on the same communication platform. And that's our stance, right? It's very hard to get us off of that stance. But we still get people that say, we want to just do nurses or just doctors. And that doesn't make sense to us. So we will walk away from things like that, that we know it's just going to be a bad experience. David, any thoughts around this? Yeah, this is a great topic. Um, so... <laughs> I get asked by our users to go to our vendors far more often than we actually do end up going to our vendors. So I get a lot of, hey, you know, why can't you go back to Epic and ask it to be done differently? Why can't you go back to Halo and ask it to be done differently? Or any of the other dozen vendors that we use for, for different purposes. Um, and, and I'm always kind of nervous to do it for two reasons. One, um, they should be the expert on, on this, especially if we've got vet part, vendor partners who are well-established and are successful in lots of places. And so that was kind of Bill's point of, you know, why are you asking the expert to, to do something completely differently? I'm much less hesitant to go to a vendor and ask for something when instead of being a, I want you to change something that you have, but uh, hey, here's a new capability that we would like you to develop, which we don't really want to go find a whole nother vendor for this next new button that we need. Mm -hmm. We'd rather you were able to handle that for us and, and we'll get a strong relationship. We hope that'll be a win-win with our vendors too, that they're going to have something else to offer other other clients. So I'm less hesitant about that than I am about uh, asking for changes. The other reason I'm very hesitant to ask for changes is every single time we get something that's a little bit unique for us, it becomes a needy pet that we have to care and feed for forever. And so every time we're doing our regression testing because we've got an upgrade coming or we've got a new product coming in, it's just, we can always remember, oh yeah, we're non-standard in this. So, so um, <laughs> it's not that we've never done it, but I really, it just makes me tired to think about it. And, and so I, sometimes I think that's where we, we get a lot of pushback on it. That's great. Just makes me tired. I like that. Yeah. Um, all right, next question. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, Bill, let's start with you. How do you deal with user frustrations if you cannot currently or ever address their particular issue? How do you differentiate between reasonable and unreasonable complaints? I'm guessing it helps that you're a physician and right. you've done the work, right? Because if you weren't, then you wouldn't know. So your thoughts? Yeah, this is a fun one, so to speak, because, um, you know, you're right, being a physician does help. And I can say to, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, I've lived this, I've worked in your shoes and experienced this previously. And I agree, your frustration's reasonable. This is why we can't address it right now, but we are working with our vendor partner to um, be able to address it. Or 
I agree, this is absolutely terrible, but it's something we have to do for regulatory purposes. You know, I think it's really helpful when someone has a frustration to explain the rationale behind that, but also validate the frustration that they have. Um, most of the time, our users do come to us with, with reasonable concerns, but sometimes they're, they're framed unreasonably or perceived unreasonably by the recipient of, of the concern initially. Um, and I use that semantic there of concern versus complaint because complaint has such a negative connotation. Um, you know, these are things that are bothering, that's bothering someone. It's bothering them for something that's, for a reason that's very real to them. And we need to, you know, dig sometimes a little bit deeper from, from a behavioral standpoint, really, into that to help understand why that's so distressing to them. And, you know, I, I found that even with very brief conversations with, with clinicians, just giving them the reason why something behaves the way that it does helps reduce that frustration so significantly. Do you think that, that uh, and we've heard of physicians uh, acting inappropriately, mm -hmm. uh, you know, towards nurses and especially towards IT. And when I say inappropriately, I mean yelling, mm -hmm. you know, just anger. Uh, I'm guessing you get less of that because you're a physician, whereas if you were an IT person, you might get a little more of it. Do you think they kind of temper themselves when they're, when they're expressing frustration to you, or have you seen have you seen it go off the deep end? Oh, I, I've I've been yelled at and cursed at a number of times, certainly by my <laughs> colleagues. Um, but you know, one of the you know jobs that we have in the role that you know we hold is that de-escalation, that diffusing right. of those tensions, and you know really being able to help explain to our clinician colleagues, our our physician colleagues why decisions have been made or why systems function in the way that they do often de-escalates the situation more than almost anything else. Yeah, it sounds like you really need the right personality for this job, David, mm -hmm. that you can't be the kind of person that's going to yell back. Otherwise, it doesn't do any good. That doesn't go well. What are your thoughts, David? No, I, the, empathy and empathy and understanding and education are probably the keys to, to handling the request that isn't going to get addressed. Uh, hope for the future that, you know, someday maybe we'll have something this, but it's a twinkle in our eye, it's not going to happen. The, the other part of your question was kind of between the reasonable and unreasonable. Mm -hmm. There's some things that are just clearly unreasonable. And that one, you're just, you're going to be left with saying right off the bat, I'm not going to waste committee time or a bunch of other people. There's sometimes we just say, listen, we're not going to do that. And, and, and I, I get where you're coming from, but this would be radio for one with this. We can't do just one thing that's going to affect you and, and hurt everybody else or not help it. Then for ones that are maybe reasonable, but it's, it's kind of tougher to tell. So I, I go back to our failure mode effects thing where we started to say how many people get affected by a, a given change and does it affect some negatively while it affects others positively. But some of those we have to actually go into a little bit more of a process where we're going to evaluate this potential change with other clinicians and other groups, because we've got a lot of masters and we've got to make sure that, and, and vet it by other people than more than just within IT or just within uh, our, our, some of our leadership. So I think sometimes it's tougher to tell the unreasonable from the reasonable, or at least uh, the advisable from the inadvisable, yeah. maybe. Um, if there's clear ones, but it, it, it all comes down to kind of an empathetic listening response. And we all know that uh, the individual asking has a big effect on how the uh, request is received. Uh, first year uh, resident or whatever versus 
you know, big time surgeon who's bringing in, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Those are going to be received a little differently. But let me, we can put that on hold for a minute. Um, <laughs> let me go to, to Jose because we're talking about um, dealing with requests um, mm -hmm. and whether they're reasonable or unreasonable. As a vendor, uh, and, and uh, David had mentioned this, as a vendor, you get requests. Right. You have user groups say request. We want your software to do this. We want your software to do that. We mm -hmm. want this over here. We want that over there. Mm -hmm. You have to have a very formal process for which changes you are going to make mm -hmm. and which you are not. And you have yeah. to have a way for telling certain customers that's not something we're going to incorporate into our standard build in a future mm -hmm. release. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts around how you handle that? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll just say, first of all, I'll start by saying something about CMIOs or uh, I used to say urologists, my dad's urologists are nice people, like all the urologists I've ever met been nice. I don't know why, but CMIOs are also very nice. And, you know, like people like David have had plenty of opportunities to yell at me, you know, none of them really have, you know, which has been, you know, we've had good relationships and I'm sure I've given them reason to, to pick up the phone and yell at me, but they do have requests. Uh, and, you know, we have 200 organization customers and, and CMIOs. I have, I deal, talk to a lot of them and we have an advisory board that we pass it through a clinical advisory board and we have doctors and nurses in the company. The first thing we're primarily a mobile platform and a mobile platform needs to be scalable and needs to be never customizable, but configurable, right? Cause we're software as a service. And as soon as you start making customized stuff, you, you know, Operating systems change every three months. You're doing new releases. You're breaking things. So you really need to make a configurable platform. And, and, and so we say highly configurable, but not customizable. So we look at every request that comes in. We, a lot of them go through the advisory board. A lot of them just make sense right away. And we try to do it. Um, and we try to see, you know, we ask how, how many people are going to benefit from this, right? Is this kind of a niche thing that one health system wants? And it's just like, a workaround that really doesn't scale or is this something that's really going to be beneficial to everyone? It's, it's how we look at it, you know, and we have a really big, you know, kind of a roadmap that we have just a space for development just for those types of requests. Uh, and they are a lot, right? They, um, there's a lot of ideas. I mean, CMIOs have a lot of great ideas. I wish we could do them all right away. You know <laughs> I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but um, that's a process, right? We have an advisory board, physician and nurse. They, we, we sometimes present them there and, and the best ones go through quickly. And obviously the size of the organization, right? And the cloud of the organization matters. I mean, you know, you are running a business, right? And, and so- There's no question. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be real about that, you know? Um, so those, those uh, you know, like David's organization calls us up. We're going we're gonna to try to do the best we can to get something done. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think we're going to try and do our, our little audience poll here real quick. Um, so let's launch that. Um, despite all efforts, clinician burnout will be worse three years from now. Do you agree or disagree? And our panelists can vote uh, and it's anonymous. So uh, it's not like you're going to go back and get yelled at if you have a negative answer. Um, so let's take a minute and answer and uh, answer that poll, and then we'll look at the results. I want to get to uh, an audience question. Have you developed a scoring system when assessing a change to the EMR specifically related to documentation? Uh, we'll add 
to clinician burnout, something really uh, some something rated high may need additional review before implementation. So let me read that again. Have you developed a scoring system when assessing a change to the EMR specifically related to documentation? Um, Bill, let me go first. We have not developed a, a scoring system like that. Um, we, we generally undertake a holistic evaluation, but nothing that's as structured as what's described there. Okay, uh, David? We did. I loved it. It was my baby and we don't use it. And I'll tell you why we don't use oh, it. Yes. It was too, uh, by one, filling it out was a bit of a hassle. And, and so it created sort of its own administrative burden and virtually never did it become a deciding arbiting factor between whether we're going to do or something. It just didn't carry, the, even if you had a great, uh, the score was whatever the score was, we never did or didn't do something based on the score. And so it was, it was an effort that, uh, that for us did not pan out. Maybe it was my system, but, but anyway, we did, we did, <laughs> but we don't use it. Okay. Okay. There we go. Um, next question. Uh, how can technology like AI help reduce alert fatigue? Uh, Jose, any thoughts around AI? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, AI is, you know, this type of machine learning, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, just like everything, there's a lot of hype and, and, you know, and talk about AI, but starting simple, right. Like recognizing inappropriate um, communications, right. Early and letting a sender know this isn't appropriate for the time. Right. You can hold this, right. That's a simple thing, simple use of AI, recognizing patterns in communication to warn users that, the information is not appropriate and it's not going to the right person. So that's a simple way that you can uh, apply AI that we're looking at to, to recognize uh, communication and information that is set between uh, users. Bill, thoughts on AI? Yeah, I think we can do something similar when we look at our alerts too, um, by, you know, looking at, you know, having the AI look at dismissal rates and what the reasons are for dismissal and what point in the workflow things are being dismissed, for instance. Um, if um, an opportunity to intervene is being dismissed at the wrong point in the workflow for that intervention, an AI can recognize that and help us call it out a lot more quickly than we may get a reported concern around it. Um, a lot of opportunity there. I think it's still pretty early on in terms of development, however. Very good, David. I think uh, AI could be incredibly useful in terms of having a higher positive predictive value for the alerts that we do and getting uh, and decreasing the false positives. And I think that's good. I think we also have to be a little bit wary of AI. I've seen vendor products that exist that were doing things like measuring user response to the alerts and then saying, well, Allard never pays attention to them anyway. We'll just quit giving them to them. And uh, since I tried saying a little earlier on that, uh, I thought a lot of alerts are meant as guardrails. When we think there's something clinically important that should be done at a system level, I'm not sure I want to have an algorithm that learns that it's ignores, so it quits talking. Um, that makes me a little bit nervous. All right, very good. We're going to uh, take a look at our poll, but first, and I, I get a kick out of this, I'm going to have our panelists guess at the percentage of agree. So the poll question, Let's get that on the screen. The poll question, despite all efforts, clinician burnout will be worse three years from now. What percentage agreed with that statement, Jose? I disagreed, but I would say 70% agreed. <laughs> David, what do you got? <laughs> I'm going to put the over-under at, at, at 60. 
60 percent bill and 60 was exactly what i was thinking david yeah i'm not quite as pessimistic as jose about it but i I do think that a lot of folks are still going to believe that it's going to worsen before it gets better i cannot accept the same number you got to go a little different bill 59 (laughs) 59 well i just set you up for the big win because the results are 58% 58% agree. You're off by Whoa. 1%. Wow. So 58% think that spiral left clinician burnout will be worse. Uh, people are saying that um, so much of this is, is unnecessary, silly requirements from the government about things you have to do, things you have to check off that may not be appropriate for every patient, for every discipline uh, of medicine. Um, what are your thoughts around that, Jose? Do you think that's one of the biggest parts of burnout is these requirements that people have no choice but to comply with? You know, a burnout comes in multiple flavors, right? There's the whole emotional component of, of burnout, you know, just dealing with patients and the complexity of that and your job, you know, as an oncologist, I kind of, you know, understand that aspect. Um, and then there's, there, there's this whole other component of burnout, which is the work to be done, the work-life balance, the reimbursements, the financial piece. There's so many things. IT is an important piece and bucket of that, you know, and if we can solve that that piece of it, it will make a big impact on burnout. But there's other things. Uh, I know Henry Ford has a physician wellness program, and there's other things that really encompass the whole physician and the whole nurse, you know, the um, uh, all the problems surrounding it. Right, that really are going to make the biggest impact um, for years to come. David? I, I don't, so your, part of your question was, was, is the regulatory stuff a huge component of it? And, and I'm always happy to blame politicians, but to be honest, I don't think so. I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, EMRs in, in general, <clears throat> to make a broad statement, have, have happened in the last 20 years due to the same economic and technology pressures as say the industrial revolution happened in the late 17, early 1800s. The technology caught up to take a set of processes and make it more uniform and in theory will make it better. And there's a huge amount of pain right now. And I think that's causing the, the burnout, particularly with processes being electronified but not modified. And I think what you're gonna see in the next three years is Less, these processes have now been made into an EMR process. Now it's going to be about better user interface. Do we have more voice recognition? Do we have more anticipatory actions happening? I think a lot of the change will be around the interface more than the just can we do the process or not. Um, but I think I think processes are the culprit. I think processes then will be the fix. Yeah, Bill, it's it's sometimes you just want to throw the whole thing out and start over. And you say, man, if I could just start over and map this whole thing out, uh, you know, because if we say what was on paper was just electronified and that was probably not the best way to do it, but that's how it was done. So now we have to work within this framework and try and incrementally fix and adjust. Man, it would be great if we could throw this and whiteboard it, uh, but we can't yeah. do that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's huge transformative opportunities certainly there for um, meeting regulatory requirements. And all too often we did take an existing paper process and as David said, electronify it. And I'm probably a little more willing than he is to blame our politicians for some of what we experience. (laughs) But I will also say that so much of the experience of our users is based on how we implement those political 
um, requirements versus how we, you know, the requirement themselves. You know, many times we're asking people for information that's already available elsewhere in the system, you know, making them click a box when we have that information that's housed elsewhere because we always made them check off a box on a form previously. And we have, you know, significant transformative opportunity there. Yeah, if I could completely shut down our system, whiteboard out all of our processes, our EHR afterwards would look nothing like what it looks like today. But we're, you know, we are an ongoing operation and we do have to make incremental changes to improve our user experience while we're trying to get to that transformed state. Well, we're short on time here. Jose, I want to give you a final opportunity here. And what I'm thinking is that, you know, you've got organizations out there uh, and let's let's talk about your focus, which is the the physician nurse communications. Um, so you've got organizations out there that may be on a product, they may be on nothing, I don't know, uh, pagers or whatever. What would be, you know, and maybe the org the folks running those organizations from an IT point of view, they think that the current state is good enough. It works. You know, we're getting by with it. I mean, I would imagine you would want them to know about the opportunities for you know, how good it could be. And so what yeah. are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, my thoughts are that just like EHR came in for documentation, revenue cycle and all that, you know, you have an opportunity now, there's technology out there to put a foundation for communication and collaboration. You know, a, a unified platform that can then give you this, this whole real-time area of information, calls, messaging, alerts that were in the ether and, and nobody really knows who's messaging or who's calling who or how many alerts people are getting. There's an opportunity now to centralize that, you know, and collect that information and start looking at it um, and, and provide a better user experience, you know, streamline it uh, and, uh, and make it more effective. Um, and, and it's not just for the hospital, it goes into the community too, right? So it's really creating a whole foundation of communication collaboration, cloud-based, primarily mobile, and it's about the user experience, right? We're so used to in our in our private lives of picking up our phone and just turning it on and somehow it works and setting up your Wi-Fi, your home, your Sonos thing connects. We got, you know, that's really where we got to get to healthcare is, is we got to move this technology towards what we're seeing in our consumer lives and make it just really easy for doctors and nurses to, to use it. Well, that was an excellent, excellent conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Very interesting stuff. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. And you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our excellent panel today, Dr. David Allard, Dr. Bill Maynard, and Dr. Jose Barreau. And I want to thank Halo Health for sponsoring and making this conversation possible. I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.